What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. You're listening to Seeing and Leaving, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, I kind of feel as though I'm crawling out of a long, dark tunnel, one that didn't have any Seeing and Believing episodes in it for at least a couple of weeks. Do, do you have that same feeling too? I I do. You know, our worlds have been joyed, our alds have been lang signed, <laughs> and we're ready to get back to the business of podcasting here in the January doldrums. And we're going to kick it off with a bang. We're going to be sharing our favorite films of 2020. Can't wait to share them with you. Can't wait to discuss a few movies that we didn't get to talk about on the podcast before. That's all coming up on episode 364 of Seeing and Believing. Hey, Kevin and Sarah, Wade here. I saw some pretty good films in 2022. After Yang, great movie. The Fablemans, great movie. After Sun, Richard Linklater's Apollo 10 and a half. Yet, I think that for many people, at least for me, 2022 will be remembered as the year of the action film. I love action movies. We saw Top Gun Maverick, definitely in my top 10. And while Jordan Peele's Nope isn't technically an action film, that final sequence is some of the best action filmmaking that we have seen in a long time. That leads me to my favorite film of the year, also an action movie. It is S.S. Raj Almule's R.R.R. Set in India in the 1920s, it follows two revolutionaries. Now, over the years, I've heard some critics categorize movies into one of three categories. You've got lazy or poor, entertainment, purely entertainment pictures, and then you've got art, where entertainment meets art. And I think at first glance, RRR falls into the entertainment category. But on further examination, <laughs> one finds this, this treasure trove of detail, of talent, of spectacle embedded into a story that's more than just entertainment. It's about honor, loyalty, personal and collective duty, and yes, the age-old theme of, of bros just being bros. I had the best time watching RRR and I think I annoyed everyone around me because I kept talking about this movie. Everything in the film is intentional and it all serves this vision and in, in, in this story. It, it really is, I think, this uh, melding of art and entertainment together. That's my favorite movie of 2022. I look forward to hearing more about your picks. Keep up the good work. So at the beginning of a new year for the podcast, it feels appropriate that we would also allow some time for uh, the golden past of seeing and believing to find its way onto the show. That voice you heard was, of course, Wade Bearden. Wade Thanks for sharing that pick with us. Host Emeritus back in in glory to talk about a frankly pretty glorious film, I think. Yeah, and it's actually 
pretty fitting in a way that RRR would have been his his pick for his number one because I feel like there's something about RRR that is just so fresh and different mm-hmm. compared to what a lot of at least American audiences were used to that um, it works for an intro into this episode where we're also going to be doing something a little bit different for our top 10 of 2022 show. Normally what we do, Sarah, is we, uh, you know, we count down from 10 to one and each of us alternates our picks. Mm -hmm. We found while prepping for this episode that uh, there was a lot of overlap between our top fives. So we're going to go with the usual format for this first segment, number 10 through six. And then for the second half of the show, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to present a joint top five for the first time in seeing and believing's history. And Sarah, I know that even just that brief explanation of numerical rating wonkery <laughs> has already set your teeth slightly on it. It's okay. I mean, I am anti-ranked list for the most part, but I did get to take my revenge on Kevin a little bit by messing with the order of his list a little bit for our joint top five. There was a little bit of numbers trickery in there, yeah. which will become clear as the episode goes on, but yeah. I, I took some perverse joy in it. Yeah, your teeth might be on edge because we're doing a ranked list at all. Mine are slightly on edge because in the context of this episode, my ranking is just not in order and <laughs> it bothers me, but I'll get over it. <laughs> We'll get to talk about movies. I feel like that's a good consolation prize. Yeah, and and I feel like there are, for obvious reasons, there are a lot of good movies to talk about. Before we jump into talking about them, though, I'm curious to know, as you were forming your your unranked list, um, (laughs) was there anything that you saw kind of common themes among your personal picks or maybe kind of common themes you noticed about 2022 as a whole? Um, I tends to gravitate towards horror a little bit more in the last few years than in years previous, I think. So I was kind of surprised by the number of horror or horror adjacent movies that ended up making my top 10 list. I was expecting it to be one or two and then a few honorable mentions. But it, it kind of feels as though a lot of the movies that at least I gravitated towards this year had to do with horror and grief and coming to terms with both of those kind of conflicting emotions in ways that surprised me. So the type of melancholy stories that I tend to gravitate towards, but in ways that I did not expect them to handle that subject matter. Um, I'm curious to know if if you noticed any themes like that too. I mean, uh, not the horror thing so much, but I think you're right on in identifying that there's just kind of a mood that was running through a lot of the best movies of 2022. There's just something about having come out of a pandemic, coming out of lockdown, coming out of a whole lot of very difficult uh, cultural forces at work here that just, it felt like it gave a melancholic tenor overall to a lot of the storytelling and all not just the stories themselves, but also the way that I personally received them. Hmm. Um, as I count down my list, probably, you know, listeners are going to notice that there's, there are certain things that I'm going to mention over and over again that just resonated with me particularly strongly. And I don't know if that was intentional on the part of these filmmakers but that was the way they hit me, and uh, they hit me pretty hard. <laughs> it definitely feels like there's something in the water, but 
yeah, it, it feels as though even though these movies are very melancholy and mournful, they're not really approaching that subject matter on like a one note level. It feels as though there are a lot of different angles that they can approach the sadness, the grief, the horror in some really interesting ways. So Kevin, with your number 10, I, I did notice that this is one where you're dealing with some heavy subject matter, but it, I felt like this movie surprised me in some interesting ways. So I'm curious to know about your your number 10 pick. Yeah, so my number 10 is probably the most obscure of my picks for this list. It's the latest film from director Ali Abbasi, who is, he's an Iranian expat living in Denmark. And I, I want to make sure to catch up with this film based on Abbasi's previous film, Border, which I can't say I really enjoyed all that much, but <laughs> it was just so startlingly original that it immediately marked Abbasi as, as a filmmaker to watch and to seek out his later work. And this latest film is called Holy Spider. And it's not as completely out of left field maybe as Border is, but it's definitely, it's about something in a way that uh, is holy, that, that, I, that I at least haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. So this is, Holy Spider is based on the true story of an Iranian serial killer who killed over a dozen sex workers on the streets of Mashhad before being caught. And that sounds like maybe a stock serial killer procedural hook. <laughs> but what sets us apart from that is that it's got these political undercurrents that are really that were really resonant for me at least in the film and also in the real world events the religiously conservative iranian authorities were actually perfectly content to kind of look the other way as the killer went about his horrible crusade and what makes this film uniquely stomach churning is isn't the violence but kind of the sneaking suspicion that creeps up on the viewer as it goes on that not only is the killer who's this just kind of an everyday family man mm -hmm. going to get away with this, but he might even become a folk hero because of it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of sick feeling of, of seeing some like a car crash in slow motion, like seeing society, just the, the injustices uh, laid bare in a very naked and ugly way mm -hmm. um, was just really indelible about Holy Spider. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of, resonances with American culture as well in the ways that um, some people are not just uh, not just escape uh, any sort of consequences for their wrongdoing, but are actively lauded for them. Mm -hmm. That's very familiar. That, that hit me where it hurts. And that's why Holy Spider was one of the films that, you know, hit me with a gut punch and left me thinking about it long after it had ended. There's a very ordinary sense of hypocrisy, I think, towards the forces that greet this serial killer and kind of treat him as that hero. You, you can kind of see the seeds of a folk hero being born throughout the story. And you can also see... Um, our, our entry into the movie is a female journalist um, whose name is Rahimi. She's played by Zara Mir Ibrahimi. And she... Um, it, it's, it's almost as though the movie is framing her sort of as a Clarice Starling kind of figure at the beginning, but instead of kind of the, the grimy sordidness of, you know, Silence of the Lambs, which is a great movie in its own right, um, this movie is much less, um, I don't know, e exceptionalizing about 
the nature of the crimes that are happening and about the way that those crimes are being received by the general public. It's just one journalist up against both the police force and then basically everybody else who is here to laud this guy who's murdering people left and right, essentially. And and you see a lot of you don't see every single murder, but you do see quite a lot of them. I found the the depth of the detail that this movie goes into, into watching these crimes be committed to be kind of overpowering and pretty oppressive, frankly. Um, but the movie's honest. It's The camera's not going to look away. The camera is going to implicate you if, if you think that these sex workers are people who should be murdered, essentially. Like, there's, there's a lot of frankness about the way that the story is told, and then there is a lot of frankness about the balance of power, I think, between the journalist who is investigating these crimes and then also this very ordinary man who slips up multiple times and is still almost able to get away with it. Um, stomach churning, I think, is the right word for it. And something about the uh, the performance of, of that serial killer is just so... It, you you hear you know you think of the phrase the banality of evil but it, i mean that's part of it but also you begin to see as he begins to realize that uh after you know he the law begins to close in on him so to speak his dawning realization that he might get away with it and might even be better off than he was before after mm -hmm. is just the the mingled uh, grandiosity that he begins to to feel in that just in the performance is just so again just it, it's stomach churning in in a way that is different from just like watching a disgusting series of murders it's mm -hmm. it's something deeper it really gets at kind of the the fallen societies in which we live and uh, have to find our way towards some sort of justice. Anyway, like it's, it's a difficult film, but I found it to be just, it, it stuck with me and that's why it's my number 10. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, where did you uh, end up? I, sorry, I, let me have a better, I have a better segue for that. I'm good. <clears throat> so Sarah, for your, for your number 10, uh, justice is also kind of foremost on the agenda for it. Yeah, it is. So my number 10 was Saint-Omer, uh, directed and written by Alice Diop, who up until this point, I believe, has just been um, a documentary filmmaker. So this is her first narrative film. Um, and in Santomer, Rama, played by Keije Kagame, is a novelist who attends the trial of Lawrence Coley, played by Guslagi Melanda, a young woman who has been accused of killing her 15-month-old daughter on the beach. Rama intends to draw on the trial to write an adaptation of the Greek myth of Medea, but the trial doesn't go quite as expected, and Rama finds herself questioning both her place as a mother, her place as a daughter, and then also her place as an immigrant in this society. The movie's set in France, and both Lawrence and Rama are immigrants themselves. Um, and I was, I was really struck by the kind of the matter-of-fact way that this story is also told as well. You you can really tell that Diop has a very assured hand behind the camera and that she trusts people who are in front of that lens to be able to give that performance and tell that story. Um, maybe that's the documentarian in her. Maybe that's just how good of a director that she is. Maybe it's a combination of both of those. But I did not expect this mostly courtroom drama to be as riveting as it is, especially for a movie that spends so much time in just static shots with people square in the middle of the focus, square in the middle of the frame, delivering monologues about 
what they were doing on a specific day. And about, again, pretty horrific crimes, kind of kind of with Holy Spider, there's also this sense of mundanity towards the crime of the murder that's being investigated in Santo Mer as well. It's a little bit different because I think all of these all of these people who are being called to witness to this crime and who are being called as witnesses for the defendant kind of try to present themselves a specific way as though they aren't who they really are. So a couple of the witnesses come onto the stand and they, they kind of present themselves as upstanding members of society. And then the judge starts questioning them and tearing down that facade a little bit brick by brick. And the only person who is really exactly who she says she is, is the defendant, Laurence. And she just says, I don't know why I did this. I did it. I confess to it. I don't know why I did it. So I don't think that you can convict me of murder. Um, and the... I don't know, the, the moral quandary that the movie places you as the viewer in, as well as um, all of the characters who are watching and, and bearing witness to this trial, as well as being witnesses within the trial, I think, is one that's unflinching. And it's also one that doesn't give you very easy answers. So I think like with Holy Spider for you, Santo Mare really stuck with me for some probably pretty similar reasons. Yeah, this one just barely missed my top 10 as well. I think it's a really strong film. And what was surprising to me about it was the you, you think of courtroom dramas being very straightforward, like it's all about the procedure, right? Like watching uh, two sides argue against each other, watching kind of a, a systematic presentation of facts and uh, a logical wrestling with them. But with this film, what caught me off guard was the mysteries at the heart of it are very prominent and some of them are never fully answered mm -hmm. um, and a lot of those mysteries don't have to do with the facts of the case so much as who these characters are and what's really going on inside their heads um, obviously the the defendant in this case a lot of the central tension of the plot is centers around like well, what was she thinking how could she do this to her child mm -hmm. um, but uh, even beyond that, kind of the question of just motherhood in general is something that's really hanging in the air around a lot of these characters. So the um, the audience surrogate character, I guess, Rama, is, is facing down motherhood herself, mm -hmm. has a difficult relationship with her own mother. And the place in which this film ends up with uh, Rama and her mother in the same room, there's kind of a there there there's an a glance that we see where one of them regards the other and you don't know exactly what is going through either of the, these characters heads um but you don't need to know exactly what it is to to understand that there's something powerful linking them mm -hmm. um linking them through generations and through uh familial love I found that to be a really interesting thing to see in a courtroom procedural. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's what elevated it above, just above and beyond a, a courtroom procedural to something that felt very distinctive and uh, lasting. And very tense. Again, for a movie where a lot of people are sitting in a courtroom or standing in a courtroom, um, this movie is very conscious of where everybody sits in the room, both in terms of where they're actually seated, like the blocking of the movie, but also where everybody sits within society and then where also they are regarded by the other characters. And there's this thread, I think, where Rama 
and Laurence are kind of linked in the eyes both of the audience and then of the different people around them in the courtroom, purely because they are both immigrants and they are both black. And I think the movie does a really good job of teasing out the differences between these characters without explicitly having to state them necessarily, placing both of them into fairly similar situations without painting them with the same brush, which I appreciated. And I think a lot of the internal tension that Rama feels is that she starts off the trial identifying somewhat with Laurence, but also treating her almost as a subject for study because she's going to draw on this trial for the subject of her next book. And then as the trial continues to unfold and no answers are given, Rama realizes that she doesn't really have very many answers for her own book as well. And and that kind of tension where there is no resolution and there is no way of knowing precisely how any of these characters feel any more than you did at the beginning of the story, I think is quite remarkable because it does still feel very much like a dynamic, almost thriller-like movie. Yeah. So, yeah. So speaking of thrillers, <laughs> <laughs> your next movie is uh, technically not your number nine because that got bumped up to our joint list. Yeah. You know, we'll we'll, we'll leave that as it is, but I actually, <laughs> it's kind of in a way, it's fortuitous that this ended up in the spot it was because it allows us to shift out of the, you know, these movies of very heavy subject matter to what I think is maybe the most entertaining film of the entire year, or at least the film that I was most entertained by. And that would be Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy. Yes. Never bet against Soderbergh. <laughs> like, I don't know. From the very first scene, you know, we see the, the first scene, we see this kind of tech mogul guy giving a cable TV interview and he's wearing, uh, you know, a suit and tie on on top and then he's wearing pajama pants on the bottom. Yes. He's giving the interview from his garage and there's been like a bookcase hastily dragged in front of his webcam to sort of make it look like he's in a, in a fancy study. Uh, and then the interview ends, obviously, and just like gets up and he walks into the kitchen and, you know is wearing his pajamas and has having to deal with a, you know, a kid who won't sleep. And I just loved that sharp observation from Soberg. It felt, it it gave me combat flashbacks to, (laughs) to, uh, you know, the days of COVID lockdown, just kind of the way it reshaped human behavior in in strange and sometimes absurd ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think it's just a crackerjack thriller. It's kind of, uh, a remix of Rear Window and The Conversation, except for a world in which Amazon's Alexa sometimes records horrifying crimes and then a faceless tech worker has to decide what to do with that. Yes. Um, I just, I loved that recontextualization. I loved how perfectly it captures a cultural moment and again, a mood about just what it was like to live through the pandemic and what people had to do to sort of cope and survive. Um, and it's just really exciting. Like it's, it's so Soderbergh just knows genre, knows exactly how to create something lean and suspenseful and entertaining, and it doesn't overstay its welcome. And I would happily watch this movie again uh, tonight. It's just, it might be one of the most rewatchable films on my list and I love it for that. Oh yeah. It's a fantastic movie. Great perform, great lead performance from Zoe Kravitz as well as Angela, that, that sort of faceless tech worker who um, uncovers the crime and has to figure out what to do with it. And I think 
this movie might be one of the best pandemic movies, or at least the one that captured that that level and that sense of paranoia, and then continues to heighten it because Angela, Zoe Kravitz's character, is agoraphobic to begin with. Um, I actually kind of read her character as being a little bit on the spectrum as well, but not in a way that draws a really like too fine a point on it. It's not really pointed out. It's just that's a part of her character, and that's just another piece of her that she has to deal with as she negotiates the world around her, as she's trying to sort of reenter society in order to report the crime that she's overheard. Um, yeah, very thrilling, very smart. There's this incredible cut where um, Soderbergh cuts and breaks one of the prime rules of editing. So there's the 180 rule where you, whenever you cut, you make sure that everybody's eye lines are on the same plane and they're all looking in the same direction so that you don't lose track of where anybody is in a given room. And this cut happens after Angela has finally left her apartment. She's going to headquarters so that she can turn in some evidence. And Soderbergh shows her walking down the street in one direction. And then he cuts and he breaks that 180 rule and shows her walking down the street in a different direction. But you can tell that it's the same street and that level of alienation and discomfort that she feels as she's negotiating the streets of her own hometown um i personally found really thrilling just in one edit it's fantastic well the editing and also just the camera work i mean Soderbergh, you know he shoots he shoots quick and dirty uh and in this case he was kind of doing some guerrilla filmmaking as well mm -hmm. and I, it just gives it the film such immediacy and he also uses it to such great effect when creating a contrast between angela's apartment where everything's kind of in its place you know she's got a, a nicely controlled space for herself it's all clean the camera's mostly stationary for these parts and then as soon as she steps out of her door it's handheld it's it's uh it's disorienting editing we get these these uh low angles where she's kind of like silhouetted against buildings or against the sky and it's all very tense and again whomst among us doesn't remember the feeling when you're just a little bit frightened about getting covid but you had to go to the store or something and there wasn't anything for it but to venture out into the into the scary wide world and I don't know, like, maybe that's not the way we feel anymore, but I definitely remember feeling that way at one time. Mm -hmm. And I love that Kimmy just captures that and preserves it in amber for future generations. Nails it completely. Also, as somebody who lived in Seattle for five years, this movie is set in Seattle. I kept recognizing places that I knew. And I was wondering if you would, yeah. of recognition was, was terrific. So her apartment is, um, I think, right around the Soto, like Chinatown area. So she has to trek literally across the entire heart of downtown Seattle to get to the offices in South Lake Union, which is not very far north. But when you're traveling with a mask and you're not used to being outside, it can get pretty bewildering, especially because the public transit lines are not linear in that city at all. They're very difficult to negotiate if you're not familiar with them. So some additional stuff that I really appreciated about this movie that didn't really try to draw very much attention to itself, but felt very real to me. I guess I'm just going to have to rewatch Kimmy again <laughs> with that in mind now. Darn, you know. <laughs> what do you have for your number nine? So my number nine, um, we're going to go back into a little bit of the, um, of the horror vein. Although a horror movie that I personally found to be kind of funny and surprisingly gentle, especially given the uh, reputation of the man who wrote and directed it. This is David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future. Um, and 
the movie negotiates um, kind of an interesting space where it's definitely body horror. It's definitely set about 20 minutes into the future, maybe 40 minutes into the future, depending on, on how pessimistic you are about the human condition. Um, it's also a neo-noir. And it's doing some interesting things with perspective that don't feel particularly oppressive. Um, it's just laying all of these characters out as different players in sort of this trying to figure out where the human race is going to go. And some people are more resistant to it, and then some people are less resistant to it. We talked about this movie on the podcast when it first came out in June. I know I loved it. I know you were probably a little bit cooler on it. But out of all of the movies that I've seen this year, this is probably the one that I've thought about the most, which I was not expecting to be the case. Um, I kind of expected to watch it and think, huh, that was a little bit horrifying and then just sort of walk away. And the stuff that has stuck with me has not been the special effects or any of the surgery sequences. Those are definitely striking and they're also not something that you're necessarily going to forget. But it's the way that these different characters speak to each other. And I'm thinking in particular of Kristen Stewart's supporting <laughs> actress turn. I feel like she's channeling the ghost of Peter Lorre here. And I think that's what makes this movie work for me specifically as a noir. Like Cronenberg is looking towards the future, but he's also got an eye cast back towards the past and about um, the way that older modes of storytelling sometimes get it right, even though the details are the way things work and look may not necessarily look the same. It's such a strange film. And I think that's what I like about it is it's just, it's so, it's unapologetically outre. And yet there's so much about it that's recognizable. It's not just bizarre absurdity for its own sake. It's not just, uh, you know, gross body stuff for its own sake. It's, it's all recognizably human. And I think that's the strongest element of this film is, is that it, it reminds us that, you know, no matter how, far down the path of transhumanism we might get, no matter how much we think of ourselves as being more evolved or more or more progressive, at the end of the day, we're all still human. Mm -hmm. And Cronenberg captures that and maybe throws it even into even sharper relief with just how out there a lot of these scenarios are and mm -hmm. how out there this, this future is. So even though I'm not as overall positive on it as you are, I do appreciate it. And I definitely appreciate that it found a spot on your list. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's such a weird movie. And I think part of the reason why it is so weird is because it's not just a movie about a crime being investigated. I'm sensing another theme here <laughs> between a lot of the movies that we've picked for our top 10. Um, it's also about art and the role that art is going to play in the future as well. In this world, nobody really feels any pain unless they're asleep. And so that leads to a lot of extremely like extreme behavior, including surgery essentially as art performance. And so um, our main character, Saul Tenser, played by Viggo Mortensen, and his partner Caprice, played by Leah Seydoux, um, they both take turns basically like performing surgery on each other, removing extraneous organs. And yet the camera doesn't treat that as something that is so out there that it's something that's out there for this world. It's a believable thing that could happen in this world. But at the same time, the story is so insular. It kind of makes me wonder what all of the non-art world people are like in this world. <laughs> and if they think the same thing about this kind of 
this form of performance and this form of art, maybe everybody else who lives in the world of crimes of the future kind of treats it like, oh, that's that's like those fashion people who are wearing like ridiculous things on their head or something like that. I don't know. It, it feels very realistic to me, even though it is not remotely a realistic premise at all. I mean, if you really got, want to get really out there, maybe the, the other people in this hypothetical future just grumble about these performance arts like, oh, my kid could perform that surgery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess me, Cronenberg uh, can save that for the sequel. Yeah, and honestly, I, I am here for it. So um, speaking of horror, maybe a little bit of body horror, maybe teenagers potentially. Uh, what about your Teen- number number uh, eight? Teenagers, the, the most horrible thing of them all. No, I'm just, <laughs> uh, my, my number eight actually has a lot in common with Kimmy um, uh, in that it's, it's another genre-ish picture and it's another one that I think just captures a quintessential element of the the past couple of years. Um, it's We're All Going to the World's Fair, directed by Jane Schoenbrunn. And it's just, it, it feels like it really gets the isolation, the ambient dread, and the way that online existence just felt kind of spookily compartmentalized the way, you know, we have all these ways to kind of beam ourselves into other people's uh, living spaces and yet still be completely separate from them. And the ways in which that affects human behavior, this is, you know, a film that focuses very closely on just two characters a teenager named casey played by a wonderful anna cobb she's terrific i'm really looking forward to seeing uh her in more films and a mysterious older man named jb um they are the only two characters we really get on screen Mm -hmm. there's a uh a parental figure in casey's life who we hear but never see and i think all of that just is used so well to create this overwhelming sense of people living entirely through screens who aren't able to get out of the house and are just sort of the ways in which that kind of molds their behavior and the things that they want uh, in in strange, sometimes disturbing, and sometimes touching ways. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about we're all going to the World's Fair is by the time you get to the end of the film, you're not entirely sure how you feel about the central relationship. And that feels very appropriate for for their relationship. It's not it's not a film that's trying to make a point about life in the internet age. It's kind of just a film that wants to capture it and present it to us in kind of a slightly repackaged form and ask us, how do you feel about this? Mm -hmm. And that's a very interesting question to ask, I think. Yeah, yeah. I loved this movie. It's it's probably technically one of my honorable mentions. It was very, very close to making my my top 10 favorites, mostly on the merits of Anna Cobb and also on the cinematography, which is just so believably something that could be shot by a teenager on their webcam, on their laptop, in their room. Um, all of those shots are framed as as though you are looking out of the computer at Casey, at this very lonely teenager, and kind of just watching her go about her life, watching her go about this internet challenge that she's taken on, the, the World's Fair challenge, and watching her 
start to explore those questions of who she is and then also who she is in relation to JB. And one of the things that I appreciate about this movie and about some of the other movies that we've already talked about is that there is a lot of room for that ambiguity and that room for the audience to bring their own thoughts and feelings to that relationship without telling us precisely how to feel and how to think. It just is. And I think it's crucial because this kind of this this sense of loneliness and this kind of person who lives quite a lot of their life online, I think is actual people, quite a lot of us. Um, you mentioned through the pandemic, but I just also think just in general at this point. And the way that this movie presents Casey not as someone to be pitied, but someone to feel empathy towards, I think is is quite remarkable. I'm it's very easy to trot out Roger Ebert's, you know, movies as empathy machines, I think. Um, but it's a true quote. And I think that this movie really captures that sense of empathy without pity, but also like being conscious that there's not something quite right here. And there's nothing that we can do about it. We are also separated from Casey by a screen. But we can be a little bit more conscious of that sense of loneliness and alienation and probably extend that to other people that we encounter on other sides of other screens too. Yeah. I mean, I, I did spend a lot of time talking about the the COVID connection there, but I, I think what makes it worthy of a spot on the top 10 list is it captures more than just like the last couple of years. It just, it feels of a piece with just the way we live now, just <laughs> like what life is now. And I, I don't know. I appreciate that. I appreciate it for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful piece of art. Uh, Beautiful pieces of art. Uh, thanks for giving me that segue. Uh, Had to tee you up there. <laughs> your, your number eight uh, is about that very thing. Yeah, it is. So we did not get the chance to talk about this movie on the podcast either, but my number eight is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, directed by Laura Poitras, which is a documentary. I think it's actually the only documentary that we have on our collective list this year. Um, but it's about the artist and activist named Nan Golden. Um, it's told through a variety of different channels. So through her photography, Nan Golden is primarily a photographer, um, through excerpts of her famed slideshows where she would take different photographs that she had taken of her friends and put them to slideshows, put them to music, rearrange them whenever that whenever she um, displayed them. And then it's also told through excerpts of um, footage of her fight to hold the Sackler family accountable for their role in the opioid crisis. That sounds like a lot. That's a lot of different threads of story to weave together. And I think the great piece of this documentary, like what really makes it work is that it understands that all of those things are art, even the things that we might necessarily throw away, like a pill bottle. Um, so Nan Golden is interested in holding the Sackler family to account because she was addicted to opioids at one point. She had a sister who was dealing with mental illness. She came up in the art scene in New York during the height of the AIDS crisis as well. Like she was, she was going through rehab as the AIDS crisis was really starting to kick off, and she lost a lot of friends there. And so she's holding this family who ran a pharmaceutical company to account for their role and for their unwillingness to take responsibility for their actions and pushing that pandemic of opioid addiction um, to its awful heights. And so Golden takes her protests and she stages them as 
art installations herself. She would go into the museums that have the Sackler family name on their wings, and she would um, scatter pill bottles in the water and in um, water features, and and she would scatter um, prescriptions from <laughs> from the balconies in the Guggenheim, and all of these protests are meant to call attention to the appearance that something is desperately wrong and that we're normally willing to sweep under the rug because addiction is not a fun thing to talk about. And she she wanted to ensure that the Sackler family was not able to sweep their own wrongdoing under the rug either and trying to get them to remove their names from the wings of these museums. So as an art piece, this documentary I think is terrific. And then as something that... Um, manages to capture a wide variety of different art installations itself, I think it's also quite terrific, too. I mean, the the interesting thing about Poitras' work with this documentary is that um, just as Nan Golden turned her life into art just by, you know, taking photographs of the people she was surrounded by who didn't weren't given the time of day by the art world at that time. You know, it wasn't, it, they weren't chic, they weren't considered interesting, they were just sort of like kind of, neglected they they weren't important and she turned their lives into art and Poitras does something similar with golden's life here she like you said there's a lot of threads going on here and Poitras is able to take uh golden's uh personal struggles uh golden's artistic life um golden's activism and uh make a really compelling film out of all of those and so in that way she's uh almost a disciple of golden herself yeah yeah it's it's kind of a russian nesting doll almost of of different pieces of art and of displaying different pieces of art and then paying tribute to the people who have been forgotten or who have been swept under the rug um and saying that their lives are worthy and valuable as well i I think that that's um a remarkable thing to be able to do with a movie, but to be able to do it with the level of grace and intricacy that this movie manages to pull it off. Um, I don't know. I, I find it quite striking. Yeah. It captures, it captures a, a certain dimension of life. I think that's, that's very interesting and compelling. So we've had good segues uh, between movies. I don't think I have a particularly great one. So maybe if you could draw that connection. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. So my number seven pick is one that we, uh, reviewed not too long ago on the show. We both liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inisherin. So good. And uh, I think that this is uh, another film that maybe a little bit like All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Uh, it captures uh, some darker dimensions of, of life in a way that it doesn't make them, it doesn't sanitize them, but I think it makes them illuminating for us, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think is is interesting. So this is a, a film about two friends, uh, Colin Farrell, who just has had a dynamite year, by the way. Four good performances this year. Incredible, incredible. Yeah. And he this might very well be his best work of the entire year. He plays, uh, you know, kind of a, a simple uh, livestock herder um, who is friends with a fiddler uh, played by Brendan Gleeson. Gleason's character one day just decides that he doesn't like Colin Farrell's character anymore and doesn't want to be friends anymore and tells him, leave me alone. Yeah. And that is very painful for <laughs> Colin Farrell. And uh, it goes to some very dark places over the course of the film mm-hmm. where that, that rejection first causes bemusement, then deep, deep hurt, and then anger. 
And the way that it's set against the backdrop of the Irish Civil War uh, makes it clear that McDonough is, he's not just telling a story about two people. He's kind of poking at how people can be uh, cruel to each other Mm -hmm. in both thoughtless and very intentional ways. And how that, um, how people can receive that in uh, ways that can break them or that can release great beauty. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Banshees of Inisherin captures both of those. And I just think it's a deeply humane film in the way that these performances, you understand these characters. It's not, they're not um, easy stand ins for concepts they're flesh and blood people and i i think especially of the relationship between uh feral's character and his sister played by carrie condon just how there's uh some spikiness there in that sibling relationship but there's also deep tenderness Mm -hmm. and the way that that coexists side by side with some very um real darkness and despair in the film i think is Again, it's it's sort of the act is foils for each other, and I think that works really well. I also think McDonough knows the difference between um, simple uh, mental illness or depression and what like spiritual despair is. Yes. And I think drawing that distinction so clearly in the Banshees of Inisherin might be the thing that is its lasting contribution to to cinema. I I think it's very interesting to watch him do it. That distinction plus the script plus all of the performances there in, in this movie. I don't think there's a single bad performance in this film. Um I I don't think I could think of a single line that did not land the way that I think he intended it to land. And so many of those line readings were things that surprised me. There's a moment when Padraig Colin Farrell's character confronts Brendan Gleeson, and instead of yelling his disappointment, he kind of sinks it down to a whisper. And his gigantic eyebrows kind of come up to a point, and his eyebrows remain at that point for basically the rest of the movie, and he just looks so sad, and I just want to give him a huge hug. And I know that that's not going to help anything, because the only thing that's going to make him feel better is... He has his friend back, and that's just not going to happen. The difference, be- the differences between these two men um, are just completely intractable. And I think that that makes this movie just a really remarkable tragedy while also being one of the funnier movies I think I've seen this year, too. He, he draws that line, and he draws that tension just so well. McDonough is really good with the, the tragedy and comedy blending in, in his films. Uh, I still need to make you watch In Bruges because I think that's still his masterpiece. But he does it really well in the Banshees of Inisherin. Just, well. just based on Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, I'm very much looking forward to watching In Bruges. Although I gather it's a Christmas movie, so if you make me watch it outside of the Christmas season, I might resent it a little bit. Oh, well, you might have to get over that because I don't <laughs> want to wait another year. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, moving on to your pick for uh, your number seven, Sarah, you're actually going to be joined by a chorus of voices here because Sweet. this was one of the better loved films of the year, at least in the circles that we run in. So take it away, Steve Norton, Chris Williams, and Abby Olchesi. Hi there, this is Steve Norton from ScreenFish.net, and thank you so much to Kevin and Sarah for inviting me to share my favorite film of 2022. It's an easy pick for me. Without question, To me, the best film of this year is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once by the Daniels. This is a film that you will hear a lot about if you haven't already, 
as it is tapping into a sort of cultural zeitgeist with popularity, with its action and humor, and also for his intelligent writing. But there's something powerful about this film that goes even beyond its celebration of race and conversations about mental health. This is a film that I believe captures the spirit of a moment in our culture, unlike others that you're going to see on screen. This isn't just an entertaining ride. This is a conversation about staring into the world and being overwhelmed by information, by knowledge, and simply being broken by it. And how do we maintain a sense of human connection in a space where we don't even know who we are anymore? I think there's something truly special about this film for that reason, as it taps into the psychology of a moment that few films actually take the time to do. It is beautiful, it is moving, and it is fun. But to me, the best film of 2022 is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Thanks to you both once again. Hey, Kevin and Sarah. This is Chris Williams from the Criticisms Newsletter and the We're Watching Here podcast, here to talk about my favorite movie of 2022, Everything Everywhere All at Once. I saw Daniel's new film in the spring. It has not left my number one spot since that moment. This is a movie that has everything. It has multiverse-hopping, fanny-pack-wielding spouses. It has nihilistic bagels and googly eyes of hope. It has way more jokes about the movie Ratatouille than I ever expected. Uh, it features fantastic performances by Michelle Yeoh, Ki Hai Kwan, Stephanie Su, and Jen Jamie Lee Curtis. It is a movie that constantly throws new images and ideas at the audience and feels like it could collapse on itself at any moment, but it never does. Every second delighted me. Everything surprised me. Most importantly, this movie is about something. It is about complicated families. It's about the fight between despair and hope. It is about regret and contentment. It is about the power of kindness. Most importantly, it is a movie that teaches us that when life gives us hot dogs for fingers, we get really good with our feet. Everything Everywhere All at Once is my favorite movie of 2022, and to be honest, I anticipate it'll be one of my favorites of the decade. Thank you guys for another great year of shows and a collection of great movies to add to my watch list. Hey, Kevin and Sarah, this is Abby Olchesi, your guest co-host from this year's 3,000 Years of Longing and The Last Wave episode, which was one of my favorite things that I got to do last year. So thank you so much for having me on. Um, my favorite movie of 2022 is Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I love for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is just the boundless imagination with which that movie is made. Um, not a lot of respect for the concept of logic, um, but a lot of uh, ideas and fun and imagination that I think reflects kind of a childlike sensibility that I wish we saw more of in movies like this. Um, but the other part of it is that all of that enthusiasm is really balanced with, I think, a surprisingly strong level of emotional maturity and a sense of empathy and kindness that um, brought me to tears the two times that I've seen it at different moments, which I found really interesting. Um, this is a movie that I'm really excited to go back and watch over and over again and see new things in each time, which has certainly been the case the times that I've watched it. Um, and I look forward to seeing more movies like this from Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, um, but also hope that a lot of other filmmakers get inspired to kind of follow their lead and go to the strange and wonderful and exciting extremes to which their brains can take them. You can find me on Twitter at Abby Olchesi, that's at A-B-B-Y-O-L-C-E-S-E. -E. Um, I also have a substack that I started recently called No More Popcorn that you can subscribe to for free. 
Thanks. Have a great year. Bye. Thank you to all of you. It kind of feels as though I was visited by different versions of myself from different people in the universe. Um, of course, my number seven is everything, everywhere, all at once. I feel like this movie kind of ran away with 2022 in a way, or at the very least, it's really building up a lot of that momentum. It, it feels like it really struck a chord with a lot of people for a variety of different reasons. Like Steve and Chris and Abby all had completely different reasons that they like this movie. And I think all of those reasons are good and valid. And for me, what really worked was the level of specificity and the way that the Daniels, the two directors of this film, were able to kind of draw a thread of the universal out of that very specific situation. Um, I find it deeply funny that the official synopsis for this movie is just a very tired Chinese immigrant mother has trouble doing her taxes, <laughs> which is true. You don't actually really leave the IRS building throughout the course of the entire film, and yet you go on a journey across space and time and emotional depths and despair in some cases, maybe depression, maybe some mental illness in there as well, um, all accompanied by some incredibly rip-roaring action and incredibly good stunts too. I don't know if I've had a better theatrical experience this year than with everything everywhere all at once I, and you were you know you were sitting next to me in the theater at that at that press screening i heard you laughing very hard at the uh the the very first uh big action sequence we get where k hui kwan uh essentially whips out a fanny pack and uses it like a set of nunchucks yes is just the crowd went bananas at oh, that yeah. point and rightfully so it's just a crackerjack action sequence it's funny it's exciting kehui kwan what a revelation he was he's so good i he it might be my favorite performance of the entire year and that's saying something because i mean we just got done talking about colin farrell being great but kwan is so good and he plays to play so many different notes mm -hmm. in this film yeah he you know he plays kind of uh you know comic relief he plays a romantic lead he plays an action hero there's all these notes that he has to play and he knocks them all out of the park and he plays pathetic really really well too in a way that doesn't feel like gross or that like you're supposed to pity him necessarily either um yeah just a tremendous performance from him tremendous performance from stephanie sue as as one of our other supporting cast actors also some great great action from her as well the costumes in this movie too i, I don't want to get into it too much because i feel like we've talked about it a lot our, our guest speakers have also talked about it quite a lot as well, but those costumes and that color and everything else, I mean, it's, this movie does try to capture everything all at once. I don't think it quite gets there, but it gets <laughs> so close that it earns a spot on my top 10. Yeah, I mean, the only reason it didn't get on my top 10 is because it's just, it is everything everywhere all at once, and that overwhelms me a little bit, but I stand by what I said, that I had a great time with this film. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we should probably rein things back a little bit. Let's quiet it down. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, what was your number six? Uh, so my number six is Broker. That was the uh, one of the films that we reviewed before going on our, our Christmas break a couple of weeks ago. And I just really like this film. And anyone who listened to that episode, I don't know if it was if it was audible in the in the final product, but I came dangerously close to getting choked up when talking about the way that Hirokazu Koreeda 
makes you want to be tender to his characters the way that he he doesn't just invite empathy um or or compassion he does both of those things but he he genuinely makes me at least love his characters and want the best for them so sincerely and i don't think that's any small thing i think it's easy to take him for granted like oh the guy just makes gentle quiet dramas about families oh you know cute kids ho hum but that's not easy to keep doing it with the delicacy and sensitivity that he brings to every single picture and the ways in which even though i have seen him return to this thematic territory time and time again it never stops affecting me and i think that that's a its own special kind of magic yeah he's managed to tap a lot of very deep and important feelings um, and it's really hard to get at that concept of found family without sounding cheesy. And I, I don't think I haven't seen any of his movies that cross over that edge, at least. Um, yeah, this is this is a really good and special movie. And um, I don't know, like, I, I don't feel like I have all that much to add to it because I don't want to pile too much on top of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's not the sort of film where you, where you want to, like, say, oh, it's, you know, a masterpiece. Um or it's the, you know one of the best movies of the decade, but it's kind of the best movie, one of the best movies of the year. I just, I, I love it. I love it. And I want more people to see it. It's one of the best movies at doing precisely what it does. And what it does is deceptively very, very difficult to do. Difficult. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh boy. This is probably the biggest uh, whiplash uh, in in picks uh, for this entire list. So it, we're going to go from be. gentle family drama from beloved Japanese auteur Hirokazu Koreeda to this. Mad God, directed by Phil Tippett. Uh, it's a silent stop motion animated movie that took Tippett 30 years to complete because he started it back in the 80s and then gave up on it because he saw the future of movies and saw that it was CGI and not stop motion. And then a couple of decades later, some of his students found some of the models for this movie, convinced him to give it a try again. And um, with the help of some Kickstarter, there's your internet for you, I think, um, with some Kickstarter aid and a successful campaign there, they were actually able to complete this movie. Um, the official tagline says, ready your eyes, ready your soul, which I think is pretty appropriate because this movie is a literal descent into hell. I don't think the camera ever really pans up once. The camera is constantly moving downward through these gigantic, gross, kind of slimy tableaus of stop motion monsters following an assassin on their mission to try to essentially end the world. And it gets less optimistic from there. <laughs> the entire time that I saw this movie for the first time, um, I felt like I was watching something that I shouldn't have been watching. This is not a movie for everybody. Like if, if you are of faint of heart or stomach, this might be one that I would, I would give a couple of caveats to. That being said, I also think that it is one of the best movies of the year. And if you are willing to go through a sense, a very oppressive sense of nihilism for about 85 minutes and then a note of hope at the end, I think it's worth giving a try, mostly for the level of artistry and the pain that Tippett went through in order to be able to create 
this very painful looking movie. And then also for just the level of complexity in the model making and then Tippett's willingness to just present the worst of humanity to us and then to not fully lose sight of hope at the end of that. I think it's a tremendous piece of art. It's definitely one of the more unforgettable sets of images I think I've ever seen. I find it deeply unsettling. I'm not sure that I ever want to watch it again, but it's also one of the best movies of the year. I mean, uh, no no lies detected. It is all of those things. Um, I... It's a it's such a singular experience. I feel it's a little bit like Crimes of the Future in that way, in that it isn't going to be for everyone. It is there are some very outrageous subject matter to say the least, and yet it's such a galvanizing personal vision that I can't help but want people to see it because it, it is so fully and unapologetically itself. And I also don't think it's... I feel like the the tagline that you mentioned and a lot of the the hype around this, this film kind of focuses on its uh, on its outrageousness, you know, like how how extreme it is and how disturbing it is and, you know, how difficult of a sit it is. And it, it is not an easy sit. Mm-hmm. I think those caveats that you mentioned are well warranted and deserved. But I don't think that Tippett's goal here is just to like take your nose and just rub it in the worst filth imaginable and just kind of like see how far he can push the audience. I think that there's some genuine feeling here that uh, is, I I think grief or perhaps, perhaps the sort of anger that you get in some of the more uh, gnarly Psalms where somebody's just so angry about the state of the world and so outraged and sees no hope or help coming from anywhere that they can't do anything but just scream out uh their their outrage to the heavens there's a little bit of that here in mad god and i think a lot of that initial descent where we descend past a lot of really disturbing images and yet the music is not overbearing it's not Mm -hmm. trying to set your nerves on edge it's this very mournful uh lone piano note um and i think that's the clue to the audience that this isn't meant to goose you or gross you out or or make you feel uh like you're being pushed by the director the sights that we're seeing are visions of things that that should not be and that we should be sad that they exist. Mm-hmm. I, I'm i not going to say that I feel sorry for Tippett for having these things in his imagination, but I feel like the fact that he just felt so strongly about committing them to celluloid that he worked on this for literal decades, I think tells you a lot about the passion that he feels in feeling that these images needed to be seen, that he needed to share them with people. I think that's worthwhile. Absolutely. I think there's a very strong moral thread throughout the entire movie as well. Um, A lot of the horrific things that you do see on screen, and there's, again, quite a lot of that, um, are images of things being consumed or consuming. And I think that there is a very strong thread of, like a, a strong sense from the filmmaker specifically, that the world should not be in this way and people aren't meant to be 
empty consumers or consumies. <laughs> like we're not supposed to be eaten up by something and we're not supposed to just mindlessly consume other people or other things. And I think it's quite remarkable that Tippett is able to get that across through an entirely silent film. There's no dialogue whatsoever. Anybody can watch this in any language and it doesn't matter because there's no dialogue. And the fact that he's able to get that sense across both without dialogue and then also with a very morally ambiguous and kind of ambivalent like main character, um, I think is quite remarkable. And it really like puts the lie to the idea that if you see something on screen, that's an endorsement of whatever it is that's being shown on screen. I don't think Tippett is endorsing endless sin. <laughs> it's what he's showing, but I think he's showing it in a very prophetic way. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good pick. We are going to to move on from stuff, and, and we're not going to keep descending. We're going to go up from <laughs> yes. here. Uh, that is uh, our our first five of our top tens. We're going to take a break here, share some listeners' picks for their favorite films of the year, and then get into our joint top five. Hey guys, this is Joe George, and the movie that I am going to pick is one that I think is kind of getting overlooked either by the general public or kind of tossed aside by critics, and that is White Noise, the adaptation by Noah Baumbach of the high postmodernist novel by Don DeLillo. As much as I admire DeLillo, and as brilliant as his ideas are, he really is a, a writer of ideas and not really of believable people and certainly not a very funny writer. And Baumbach while he can be funny, he has such a sour view of humanity that a lot of his stuff doesn't work for me. And so I was shocked when I watched the movie and found that Bombeck was able to draw out not only the humor in the original novel, but a lot of the humanity. You know, all of the ideas are there. And it's this movie that kind of grapples with the way that we deal with our fear of death via consumerism and in, in sort of shallow culture. And so all of that plays out in, in scenes that are directly lifted from the novel in which Adam Driver's character kind of goes through all the trash that his family creates or he gets scolded by these uh, agnostic German nuns. You know, all these scenes come from the, the novel in where they feel like many philosophical essays in the book. They actually feel like comic set pieces with real human beings in the movie. And, you know, it, it, it's helped by an outstanding cast. Adam Driver plays the, the main character. Uh, Greta Gerwig reminds us that she is just as brilliant in front of the camera as she is behind the camera, uh, playing Babette, uh, the, Adam Driver's character's wife, who's kind of a tricky character in the novel. Don Cheadle is having so much fun as a fellow professor. It's just, it somehow takes the intellectual exercise that is the novel and makes it feel funny and absurd and real and there's almost a kind of sense of grace to the way that the characters struggle with their fear of death. I really think, or hope at least, that the movie finds an audience, especially as we continue to try to make sense of what it means to live in the period of COVID or other airborne toxic events. Uh, thanks, guys. Oh, yeah, you, you can find me on Twitter at J-A-George-I-I and at Joe Writes Words everywhere else. Uh, thanks a lot. And Happy New Year. So welcome, listeners, to the very first conversation segment of the new year. This is, of course, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. Sarah, 
your your ask this week was pretty straightforward given the the topic for this week's episode. What were listeners' favorite films of the year? We heard so many good answers. So The Fablemans, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which seems to be quite popular uh, amongst a variety of people. RRR, Wade will be very happy about that. <laughs> Armageddon Time. Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, and that pick made me extremely happy because that is another movie that was just right there on the bubble for me and it didn't quite make my top 10. After Yang and Top Gun Maverick. So quite a widespread of really good movies from 2022. I think all movies that I was mostly positive on, at least for the most part. Um, what about you? Yeah, I mean, there's not a single film in, in that list that I would say like I was I didn't I disliked. Yeah. There, there's some that I'm a little bit cooler on than others, but I think that, you know, 2022, there, there was a, um, a very broad, uh, spectrum of films, like something for everyone. We have everything from little indie dramas in that list that you just read to, you know, the biggest of big films with Top Gun Maverick. So I think that that's reflective of, of a year that had a lot of diverse, had a lot to offer, audiences of diverse tastes. Definitely something for everyone here, which I really appreciated. And hopefully we'll get a similar slate in 2023. Yeah, here's hoping. Uh, I did mention at the beginning of this segment, this is the first one of the new year. And and since it is the new year, I wanted to remind all you listeners out there that if you're thinking of, you know, uh, resolving that new year's resolution to uh support uh the the artists and creators that that you that you appreciate a little bit more we would be happy recipients of that largesse <laughs> yes. uh, we do have a patreon if you go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast you can learn a little bit more about how you can support us we have various tiers that you can pledge at on a monthly basis and we you know, we give a little bit back uh, one of our more popular tiers is the $10 a month level where you get to pick one film a year for us to review. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got some pretty uh, good ones in the our past archive where we did just that. So check that out. But there's all sorts of tiers that you can pledge at. And every little bit helps. You help us keep the lights on. You help us keep Jonathan paid. And you help us uh, go to movies and make episodes like this. So thanks a lot for doing that. So Kevin, we just went back and forth through our six to 10 picks for best movies of the year. But as you mentioned at the top of the episode, we're going to be covering things a little bit differently for that top five. So instead of having separate top five lists, we actually have a joint list, which we were able to put together because we kind of mostly agreed on our absolute favorite movies of the year. I don't really know what to do with that. Like, this, <laughs> this, what, what is what is going on here? You know, Wade and I would sometimes agree on a lot of things, but that level of simpatico ranking, I guess, didn't, didn't ever really occur with Wade and me. So I'm just, this is uncharted territory for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uncharted territory for me as well, but I think that's just because this is only my second time doing this. So We'll see. I mean, it's it's not a trend necessarily. I think it's just a really fun piece of trivia. And, and I mean, I think it also speaks to the fact that we are just objectively right in this case about what the best movies of the year are. There's no room for disagreement. We both know, like, these are obviously the best five I of mean, the year. I mean, I will find uh, some issue probably because one of these movies in our collective top five is technically your number nine pick, but I think I'll forgive you for eh, that. I mean, you know, uh, it's it's a small quibble. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So let's go ahead and get to that number five pick, uh, which happens to be Tar, written and directed by Todd Field. 
It's a movie that we talked about earlier in this year, but it's been a little while. So for listeners who may be unfamiliar, Lydia Tarr, played by Kate Blanchett, is at the height of her career. She's the first chief conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. She's about to conduct a live recording of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. She has a memoir about to be published. And she has a problem, namely with power and the way that she wields it. And she's kind of haunted by the things that she's done to other people, but in a way that she isn't willing to own up to or express to anybody else. This is a very insular movie. You very much get inside Lydia Tarr's head. And a lot of that comes from Kate Blanchett's incredible performance. So that's part of the reason why we picked it as our number five. Gosh, it's such a great performance, too. I I just I remember sitting in the theater watching this for the first time and just being enthralled by how I don't know, it just felt so refreshing to have a film that was just unapologetically like, it's going to go hard. It's It, it felt like a, a movie for grown-ups. Yes. I, I, and, you know, that's not necessarily that unusual. I mean, obviously, all of the films on our list are filled for grown-ups <laughs> to, at, in, to some extent. But I think Tar just felt like it was so uncompromising a character study. Mm-hmm. It didn't hold our hands at all, like trying to tell us exactly how to feel about Tar, uh, how to interpret some of the more uh, surreal elements that that crop up over the course of the, the film. It was just, it really trusts its audience. And I, I loved that feeling. I, it was exhilarating to feel like Todd Field has such confidence in his material, in his cast, and in his audience to just lay it all out there and and let us draw our own conclusions. And it was great. Yeah, I'm a little bit leery of the term magical realism because I think it implies a level of floatiness or head in the clouds, I think. But there is kind of a level of magical realism to this movie. And maybe it's because it's also sort of a ghost story. Um just revisiting clips for this movie, specifically for this podcast, I I kind of was struck by all of the small details that I remember watching but had forgotten in the interim. And as I was watching them again, they kind of felt a little bit like a bad dream. And a lot of this movie does feel like it's Lydia Tarr's bad dream. It's definitely her worst nightmare when it comes to her fall from power and her fall from grace. And I think what makes it so special is that the movie isn't willing to stop at that height and let us imagine that fall. It's going to take us all the way down with her and watch her try to climb her way back up again. And I think that's what makes it such a great character study as opposed to a morality play is that the decisions that Tar makes before and after her fall and then after the aftermath of that fall are all things that make sense for a very cohesive character to make. And she's not a very simple character to watch either. Like there are very specific individual ticks and foibles that she has um, that I can't really imagine summing up any one other person. She's she's one of the more singular characters I think I've encountered. I, I can't remember if I brought this uh, comparison up when we actually reviewed the the film on the show, but I was really reminded of Robert De Niro's performance in Raging Bull mm, you while did. watching this. Yes, um, just in terms of I mean, number one, they're just, they're both Titanic performances. I think this is arguably Kate Blanchett's best performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even more just the way that it portrays a, a person who is who is kind of so driven by by their own values and their own appetites 
in uh tar in Leotard's case, it's kind of the appetite for for prestige and power. Mm-hmm. Um that they're not a slave to to those things necessarily, but it's almost like they just don't have any interest in pursuing anything else. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very intriguing way, char- kind of character to build a film around. Yeah, and I think one of Tar has very many flaws as a character, uh, which is part of the one of the things that makes her such a great character. But I think one of her biggest is that she thinks she's able to tame that monster and she's able to control that level of power when in reality she is controlled by it. She just doesn't know it. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tar is many things. As a conductor, Tar began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tar as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes. Yes, it does happen. It's it's very much a you know you you think of Paul's uh, writing on sin and what it does to a person mm-hmm. and. You know, you, you, Lydia Tarr, she needs to read her Paul. (laughs) (laughs) That sin will find you out. And speaking of things that will find you out, our number four has to do with seeing, finding, witnessing, being witnessed. Yeah. So uh, our number four uh, pick is Nope uh, from Jordan Peele. I don't think, you know, per, this this was, spoiler alert, this was the film that I had a little bit lower than you, Mm -hmm. but I still had my top 10. I think it's really good. And it's not because I think Nope is Peel's best film. I think that uh, honor still goes to Get Out. Mm. But I do think it's the movie that most firmly establishes him as one of the next generation of great American filmmakers. It's definitely his most ambitious film. And it's got so much to say about, uh, you know, going back to what we were saying about Tar, kind of this obsessive human need to make our mark on the world around us, mm. to capture and control it, to say something indelible through our work or through our art. Um, you know, the, these characters, they're all trying to kind of get the perfect shot without giving too much away. That's kind of what they're all going for. They're all trying to, to capture evidence of a certain phenomenon and uh, the lengths to which they'll go to to get it the danger that they'll put themselves in and others in to get it is very telling. That's all really interesting thematically. It's also just a really crackerjack kind of sci-fi horror picture. Mm-hmm. The uh, the big bad in this film, I think, is just a stunning bit of production design. Yes. And I loved the little tangents that Peel goes on. They're the sorts of tangents that you're watch the first time you're watching it, you're like, huh, I don't really I I'm not sure I fully understand why this is here, 
but I sense that it needs to be here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's a film that will reward repeated viewings as you watch it more and more and, and get a sense for the method behind Peel's madness, I think is... I, it's what makes it rewarding. And that's why I don't really begrudge it being all the way up here in the top five because it's just, just that good. What if I told you that today you'll leave here different? Pops. Pops! I'm talking to you. Bro, what'd you see? Something about the clouds. That's big. How big? Big. You think whatever killed Pops is out there? Right here, you are going to witness an absolute spectacle. So what happens next? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Are you ready? It's a great movie. It's so much fun, too. Like, Peel is having fun telling this story. I think he's also having a little bit of fun with the audience. There's a couple of um, red herrings that he throws in where he's just digging his elbow into your ribs a little bit. And he's saying, you thought you were going to see something specific. And I'm going to show it to you. But it's not going to turn out to be precisely what you thought it was. What I have is something better. But he doesn't do that in a way to look down on the audience or make fun of the audience. He's taking us along for a ride. And he's doing it while managing to tell a story that is, it's about seeing and being seen. It's about trying to chase that perfect money shot. I think a lot of it also has to do with the way that the entertainment industry and fame chews people up and spits people out. And the ways that you can't really like necessarily tame that beast. Um, kind of like with Tar, really. There's a little bit of fun thematic uh, commonality there, too. I don't know. It's 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 just, it's such a phenomenal, singular story that is remarkably complex. But once you go down into the depths, it's also just a good old-fashioned, like, story about what may or may not be a UFO. We're not going to tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll leave it there uh, and move on to our number three. And to get that kicked off, we've got Josh Larson of Film Spotting and Think Christian and Larson on Film to share his favorite film of 2022. Hey, Sarah and Kevin, Josh Larson here, host of the Think Christian podcast, co-host of Film Spotting. And while I'm plugging things, soon to be author of the book, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror. That should be out later this year. My number one film of 2022 is After Sun, the debut feature from writer-director Charlotte Wells. This is a fictional memory piece. The movie focuses on a woman recollecting details from a resort vacation she took with her father when she was 11. We see home video footage from the trip, as well as dramatized moments of that time from various perspectives. Paul Meskel and Frankie Corio, playing the father and daughter, have a connection so natural it becomes something magical. Wells, meanwhile, working with editor Blair McClendon, weaves something both gauzy and devastatingly clear out of her seemingly simple images. I'm not alone in my love for After Sun. I know, Sarah and Kevin, that you both like it too. So I'm afraid at this point the movie has received too much praise for such a delicately, intricately constructed film to bear. 
So if listeners haven't seen it yet and decide to check it out, try to go in as if you hadn't heard about it before and just came across it by happenstance. Maybe on the shelf next to your parents' old VHS home movies. Thanks for a good year of shows, you two. I'm looking forward to more seeing and believing in 2023. Yeah, so I, I completely agree with Josh on just how great this movie is, of course, because it, it happens to be our number three pick for best movie of the year. After Sun is just, it's such a delicate, gentle movie. And yet I think it has a backbone of iron. So it's written and directed by Charlotte Wells. It's her first movie, which I find astonishing. And uh, we talked about it uh, fairly recently, but I kind of want to just go back and revisit that vacation resort with Colm and Sophie and just spend a lot of additional time alongside the beach with the two of these characters as they spend some rare time together as father and daughter they they don't get to spend much of that time and i I think the framing device for the movie does a really good job of showing that as being not only a rare occurrence but also a treasured occurrence um it's just it's, it's so remarkable in the way that it folds together what actually happened and then memory and the way that memory kind of warps and changes as you remember it in the moment um which yeah i don't know it's it's just it's a remarkable movie it's a deceptively gentle movie i think i underestimated it the first time i saw it and then the second time i watched it it just hit me like a ton of bricks and i think it will reward repeat viewings over and over again as well i i think that element that that you just mentioned the fact that it does pack a wallop but it's so uh, Wells is so supremely confident in what she's doing with uh, with her editing, with the way that she cuts away to uh, scenes of an adult Sophie that mm-hmm. we don't really understand how they how they necessarily relate. We just understand it's the same character. But Wells is so confident in in the cumulative power of of all these techniques that by the time we reach the end of the film, it will have the attended effect. And it does. And I think that the fact that she's able to do that without really relying on more traditional melodramatic devices to make to make the audience feel something, mm-hmm. she invites us to feel something. And it's such a pleasure to accept that invitation, mm-hmm. to realize, for, for me at least, I didn't realize maybe until the last third kind of what this film was up to and once i realized that i was like oh that's so great and the note that it ends on i think is just perfect yeah and and yeah it's a good one for sure yeah it definitely is i love you love you Why don't you go over and introduce yourself? Dad, no, they're like kids. Why don't you go over and introduce yourself? Mm. Sophie, they're like old. Don't you ever move back to Scotland? No. Why? There's this feeling, once you leave where you're from, that you don't totally belong there again. You okay through there? Don't you ever feel like tired and down and feels like your bones don't work, like you're sinking? Hmm. 
We're here to have a good time, eh? You know, I want you to know that you can talk to me about anything as you get older, you know? Done it all and you can too. for longer. Me too. So speaking of films that pack an emotional wallop, uh, I think you have a doozy for our number two. Man, I really like Decision to Leave. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just... Pak Chan-wook is such a great filmmaker at making something that just pulls the audience along. Um, and one of the pleasures of watching one of his films is is surrendering surrendering yourself to that and the thing about decision to leave is that's also kind of the uh trajectory of the film's main character so this is kind of a hitchcockian setup about a detective who is investigating a murder and uh finds himself falling in love with the prime suspect as he's doing the investigating and the the kind of push and pull between his duty, his knowledge that this person probably did a bad thing, and also his uh, desire and kind of his disinclination to say no to that desire is a really compelling uh, hook for a story. Uh, and I kind of say hook intentionally. It's like literally like a fish hook. Like it, it gets into you and it's going to pull you along all the way to the bitter end. And the way the film does that is just through so many wonderfully cinematic techniques. The the editing is is fantastic. The way it kind of links characters across time and space. Mm-hmm. We want we don't just uh, uh, see a shot of the detective watching the suspect uh, through binoculars, uh, you know, from his car. We we have him put the binoculars up to his eyes and then immediately cut to him standing in the same physical space as her yes. and just observing her that way. Such a wonderful technique to, to really liven up the scene. The, the initial interrogation scene where he uses sound and cinematography and close-up to play up the sensuousness of what's going on here, the the feeling of of moisture on skin or the crinkling of uh, takeout packaging, the uh, the scent of perfume, the way that all those things are are played up not to not to be prurient, but to just um, make the audience feel the same sort of gravity gravitational pull that this detective is feeling. I think is wonderful and leads to the point by the time the film is getting to the end where you're not really sure you, you're you want to root for certain things to happen you're not really sure if you should and you're also not really sure if you care mm-hmm. i think that's a really uh fantastic experience to have in a film and really complex and thorny and one i enjoy wrestling with another movie for adults i think um and i think I'll- and, and sorry and it's adults but it's not it doesn't really play into like any sort of prurient, like there's not a lot of violence. There's no sex, no nudity. Mm -hmm. And yet it does feel very, very adult. Yeah, it does. 
like a very good Hitchcock movie, I think. But I think I'll do you one better and say that I think this movie treats women a little bit better than most Hitchcock does. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of the movie does this slate of hand where you're spending so much time in Hyjun's head. Hyjun is the detective. He's played by Pak Kyle. Um, you spend so much time in his head in the first half of the movie that the movie kind of sweeps you up and take you takes you along so that you understand what he's thinking and feeling throughout the entire course of the film, even after it kind of takes a little bit of a turn. And part of that strength is based in Tong Wei's performance as Seo Rai, the um, main suspect in this initial murder investigation. Um, she plays it very close to the chest and the fact that the movie is able to allow her to be a very cool customer and to allow her to still be like a fully realized character and to allow us to see her through Hyjun's eyes and then make the same mistakes that he does in underestimating her and then allowing us to come to an understanding of who she is as a person, precisely how she tells him and by extension the audience about who she is. Um, it's another movie that really rewards second watches is what I'm saying. Um, definitely worth taking the time to watch this movie if you haven't seen it. And then to go back and see it again through fresh eyes, maybe consider seeing it through the perspective of a different character. Um both times I saw it, I was swept up in the... It's it's a truly romantic movie, so I was swept up in the romance of the movie, both the little R romance and then the capital R swoony romance. Um, and both times I think I was kind of caught off guard by how much um, it's willing to use that to its advantage to really like sweep you off your feet and then also knock you off your feet, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean... That's a, a great way to put it. And again, it just comes to just these well-chosen details. I I love the scene. It's kind of about halfway, at the halfway point where uh, it, the detective and the suspect are basically on a date. And he tells her about how he gets his suits custom tailored to have all the little pockets that he needs. And they're all hidden pockets. And uh, she knows exactly where to reach in to find a certain thing mm -hmm. for him. And just that little detail says so much about how they were meant to be, except that they're... It's all. It's only. It reminded me a little bit of Michael Mann in the way that these mm -hmm. these two they're on the opposite sides of the law, but they're inextricably linked, and nobody will ever understand them as well as each other. Mm. I think that's it, it's it's a well worn trope, but Pak Chanuk refreshes it for us, and that's just great. It's fantastic. I don't think I would have ever made that Michael Mann comparison, but. I like it and I appreciate it very much. Well, we, you and I we're, we're both we're both fans of of man. We're fans of the man, so uh, got to bring him in somehow. Oh man, I hope he makes another movie soon. Anyway, back to twenty twenty two. Back to twenty twenty two. Well, we are, we've gotten all the way to our number one, and uh, I don't know that any film this year came anywhere close to unseating after yang mm -hmm. directed by koganada as my favorite film of the year i just think there's so much that it does well um and i really like having both it and after sun in the same 
top five because they're both about the elusiveness of memory, uh, the ways that you return again and again to memories. You kind of worry around the edges trying to get get at the essence of them, get the essence of what they you know what they signify, uh, who the people in them are, um, and what you should be drawing from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think after Sun does that well, I think after Yang in its story of uh, a family who has, you know, in, in the future, uh, they have a an android to help uh, serve as a companion to the adopted daughter in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the android malfunctions and for all intents and purposes dies. And they have to figure out what their lives look like without him mm-hmm. and also kind of what his life was as an android as as a being who is not quite human but who is still a created being mm-hmm. um i think koganada's explorations of that territory are just miraculous and i don't know i i the second i i rewatched it with my wife not too long ago cuz i wanted to share it with her obviously yeah. and i was sitting there watching it, i was like is this one of my favorite movies ever mm-hmm. it might be mm-hmm. it's it's that good and uh nothing else really came close in 2022 for me yeah i think after yang kind of ran away with the entire year for me from the moment i first saw it come on yang what are you doing come, come on what happened to Yang? I don't know. He shut down last night. He won't restart. Has this happened before? No. If we can't get Yang fixed, we're not going to buy another sibling for Mika. It is an interior core problem. I need your permission to break open the core. We've always known that some bots are equipped with spyware. You might not want this bot in your house anymore. I wish I had a real memory. What do you mean? gentle it's so subtle it's doing so much with simple editing and then including multiple takes of of slightly different line readings of the same lines um kind of getting at that fallibility of human memory and i think one of my favorite things that this movie does and basically everything that it does is a favorite thing of mine um but one of my favorite details is the way that koganada uses cinematography 
basically the entire tool bag, um, not just the way that shots are framed, but also the size and shape of the shots that are being used. So there are different aspect ratios in this movie. There's a more boxy square one whenever there's a conversation um, between Jodie Foster Turner and Colin Farrell as the parents of this family. Um, there's a much wider, like, I think it's a 235, like very wide, your typical cinematic range aspect ratio whenever you're dealing with the story from the perspective of, of the humans and then once you start to see the world more through yang's eyes the aspect ratio shifts to a very wide and very tall aspect ratio it literally fills your entire screen if you're watching it on your tv so typically like human beings we don't see everything so there's going to be little bars on either end of the vision but yang sees everything and he sees it clearly and his memories when they loop loop exactly the same way because he remembers things the same way that a robot would as opposed to the human beings who remember mm. things slightly differently every single time um this is a movie that i think is is personally very important for me because um it's the movie about the loss of a beloved family member and coming to terms with and coming to understand the fact that they had a whole life outside of yours that you were never really fully conscious of. I lost both of my paternal grandparents um, over the course of the last calendar year. And so um, this movie kind of helped me not come to terms with that loss necessarily, but helped me to process certain aspects of that. I learned things about my grandparents that I just never knew before they passed and that I wish that I had known when they were still alive. But being able to watch this movie kind of alongside that grieving process was really important and helpful for me personally. So it's a very personal reason for why it's one of the best of the year. And thankfully, it also has the artistic chops to be able to hold up that reputation and that place, I think, in my personal like ranking of movies. It's it's like a melody you know, yeah. <laughs> as the uh the song that recurs over the course of the film mm -hmm. mentions it's something that you know kind of sticks in your memory and you just kind of find yourself humming it from time to time mm -hmm. and thinking about it um i like uh everything you shared about it and you also you wrote about it quite nicely for uh bright wall dark room i think i did about your your uh, personal experience with After Yang. So Thank you. any listeners who want to uh, check that out, I'd highly recommend it. We'll put a link in, in the show notes so that you can do just that. So yeah, that's our, our top 10 of the year. After Yang, man, what a great movie. I don't um, think you can top that one. You can't top it. Uh, before we, we do go out, I, maybe we can share some of our honorable mentions just because, you know, there are always some good ones that were just on the bubble that we just didn't have time to to get to in the rigid confines of a top 10 episode. Mm -hmm. um, I really liked uh, Panah Panahi's Hit the Road, kind of a, a road movie slash family drama slash uh, uh, comedy uh, slash drama. It's just... Uh, a really interesting film mm -hmm. um, and really promising from uh, the son of Jafar Panahi, you mm -hmm. know, like the talent runs in the family for sure. Yes. Um, I really liked Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter. Um, another uh, film that's kind of semi-autobiographical starring Tilda Swinton as sort of <laughs> uh, the surrogate for uh, the filmmaker. 
Um, I just, but this one kind of is inflected with a gothic ghost story, sort of a turn of the screw almost feel that it's just, it's got an atmosphere to it that I really found myself digging. And of course, you know, being the, the del Toro fanboy that I am, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, I, I liked a lot. It's got flaws, but I think it's strengths more than make up for it. And uh, it's probably the best animated film of the year for, for me at least. Uh, Mad God is pretty good. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is maybe a little bit less punishing. <laughs> <laughs> They're both stop motion, though. Uh, it's true. been an incredible year for stop motion animated features, I think. Indeed. Um, so for my part, Hit the Road is also a favorite of mine. I also did quite like No Bears by Jafar Panahi, Panah Panahi's father. Um, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, speaking of stop motion movies, um, another good movie about processing grief, I think, that handles it fairly delicately and definitely kindly. Um, Emily the Criminal, starring Ob Plaza, really good crime thriller that um, I don't know, like Aubrey Plaza kind of surprised me a little bit. I think I tend to think of her as sort of a one note performer and she really has depths here and I'm really excited to see where she goes next. Um, and then finally, Neptune Frost, which is a really funky, like Afrofuturist sci-fi movie with probably my favorite costume design of the year. Um, very colorful. It's sort of a musical. It's sort of about hacking the universe. Um, it's a little bit indescribable. The movie straight up says, like, if you're asking yourself what on earth is going on here, you are right to ask that question. And now we will explain everything that's happening and has been happening for the last 30 minutes, which I really appreciated. It's very playful and also deadly serious. So mm. terrific movie. That that one, Neptune Frost, I haven't had chance to see yet. So that's that's the one item film on your list that I'm just like, I gotta catch up with that one. There's always one that I that slips through the cracks for me that I have to play catch up with. There always is. But thankfully we have a way to catch up with movies that slip through the cracks. What? So, Say more. <laughs> I'm curious to know because one of the things that we did this year that I really loved doing was going through our watch list segment, picking a movie that the other co-host hadn't necessarily seen before and then talking through it. So I'm curious to know, were there any watch list movies that resonated with you? I mean, I saw a lot of new to me films this year that I really liked as thanks a lot to that watch list segment and to your impeccable taste. Thank you. Um, the one that really just knocked me flat was Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yes. I just couldn't believe that I'd gone so long without, without having seen the film. And even without like... I felt after having seen it, why am I not hearing people talk about this movie way more than I do? Because it was just, it was so indelible. The atmosphere, it, it, maybe I just really like kind of quasi ghostly uh, <laughs> stories about strange disappearances and or appearances. I don't know, but... I, I'm here for it, and I really, really dug that film. I would say that's a really solid niche, honestly. So, yeah, I feel free to dig into that a little bit more. Um, as for me, I mean, I also saw a lot of movies that I really liked, but I don't think anything quite topped high and low. Um, I turned that on while I was visiting my parents, actually, for Thanksgiving, and everybody in the house just sort of ground to a halt and congregated around the TV. And they were like, what is this? I recognize that actor. That's Tashira Mifune. And that was basically the attitude that everybody else had around this movie the entire time that I was watching it. 
I was on cloud nine, felt like I was in the hands of a master from the moment that I saw the first shot, really appreciated being able to see like the the difference in power and attitude based on where somebody was standing in a room. So terrific movie. We're going to have to watch some more Kurosawa, I think. I mean, the, the Kurosawa fan, fanboy in me is just pumping the fist like yeah. You, you got to give it up for, for the master for sure. Really glad to hear that. And, you know, I think we are going to have a little bit more Kurosawa in our near future. So Sweet. next week, uh, you know, way back when we gave our uh, preview of fall and winter films, I mentioned that I was really looking forward to a film called Living. This is a retelling of Ikiru, directed by Akira Kurosawa. And uh, it has been written by uh, Nobel laureate Kazuo Ishiguro. So mm-hmm. that's quite a pedigree. And on next week's episode, we're going to be talking about both living and Ikiru and just sort of comparing them, just talking about them, luxuriating in them maybe. I don't know, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm very much looking forward to this too. Yeah, well, listeners... Thanks for listening to uh, this Mammoth episode. We are, of course, always interested in in your thoughts about your favorite films of the year, your favorite cinematic experiences of the year. Like sometimes there are, some, there are films that maybe didn't quite stick the landing for you, but just had sequences and moments that stick in your in your memory long after we're interested in hearing about all of it you yeah. can email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com or tweet us at see believe pod to to share all that stuff we love to hear from it and don't wait until the end of the year to do it either feel free to reach out to us if you see a movie that you particularly like and you want to hear us talk about it you can even tell us which movies to review if you end up backing us on patreon as well so additional motivation maybe 100 percent but uh you know that'll do it for uh this week's episode i feel like we we kicked off the new year with a bang oh yeah absolutely i mean i'm happy with all of the movies that we talked about so no bad movies so far in 2023 yeah we've got a good track record going let's keep it going seeing and believing is brought to you of course by the christ and pop culture podcast network our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm kevin mcclinathan i'm sarah welch larson and we'll see you next week on seeing and believing You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.